Our God, we sang truth that healing is in your hands. Lord, you are the one who heals all of our diseases. And you're the one that heals all of our spiritual ills as well. Lord Jesus, when you came to earth, you came to please the Father. And the greatest act of pleasing the Father is hanging on the cross for our sin. Lord, you wanted to show the world that you love the Father, and that's why you went through what you did. But we are so, uh, we are beneficiaries of this, and we are so grateful. And so, Lord, I pray that now that as, as we, as your people, are gathered here to hear your word, I pray that you will speak through me. I pray, Lord, that through the book of Deuteronomy, that we may truly understand a little bit more about who you really are. Lord, you are a good God, and you are a gracious God, and you are a faithful God. Lord, help us to more appreciate this as we go through your word. By your spirit, help us to understand and to apply your word to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we want to talk today about three feasts, three yearly opportunities for God's people to come together and have joyful R&R. That's Passover and Pentecost and Sukkot. We're going to talk about those. Now, feasting and celebrations in the Old Testament, no less. Now, with so many church folk, it would seem like that the Lord commanding his people in the law to have feasts and celebrations would be contradictions. Sort of like mandatory fun. <laughs> you ever been to uh, office parties or company parties where it was mandatory fun? You know, that you had to be there because your boss put it on, even if you didn't feel like you needed to be there or wanted to be there? It seems to be like a mutually exclusive term. You know, like an oxymoron. It's like jumbo shrimp that comes to mind. Or maybe the, uh, the, the product Icy Hot. Well, it seems these feasts are times when the Lord commands his people to have mandatory fun. And to make things even more interesting, he has a reason in mind for these feasts that his people experience some true R&R. Now, when we think about R&R, what automatically comes to our minds? Rest and relaxation, exactly. Like what we want to have happen when we go on vacation. But for those who've been on vacations, we know what happens, don't we? Anything but this. And in, in large measure, it's because we pack too much in, don't we? Starting with what we take, especially if we have kids or if we have grandkids that we want to bring them along with us. When we get there, we tend to pack too many activities into our vacation. And so when we get home, we have to rest up from our vacation. And then we have the aftermath of our vacation. And because all the activities we packed into our R&R cost so much money, we spend the next few months in financial R&R, which is repaying our credit cards and replacing our depleted savings. So is vacation really R&R? <laughs> Not necessarily, right? But we've amassed some great experiences in our vacations, haven't we? And some great memories, some lasting a lifetime. In other words, though vacations tend to be costly in terms of resources, of time and money and energy, it's definitely worth the cost, isn't it? That's why we take vacations. Well, today, as I mentioned, we're going to talk about the feasts and the Lord's desired outcome for his people, which is to have true R&R. &R. Now, 
R&R. It's not what you think. What is the R&R the Lord wants for his people? It's not rest and relaxation. It's remember and rejoice. To remember and rejoice. The Lord commanded his people to engage in these three feasts of Passover and Pentecost and Sukkot so that they might remember what he has done for them and as a nation rejoice in their relationship with Yahweh as his sons and daughters. Now, I continue to emphasize that the Lord of heaven and earth, the creator of all things, the only true and living God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We agree with that? This is called immutability. Immutability. That means that God cannot and does not change. One iota. See, if he could change, he would cease to be God. And that only makes sense when you think about it. See, if Yahweh changed in any way, that means his perfection changes because he's the perfect being, isn't he? And what happens when something which is absolutely perfect changes? So you can only go down from there, right? And in the case of God, who if he does change, he would cease to be God because he would cease to be perfect. And so we're going to see in our passage for today that the Lord's desire for all of his people down through the ages is to remember what he has done, and then to rejoice in our relationship with him. Now, before we dive into the details of these feasts, let me remind us that we all need, as God's people, to have a regular remembrance of who he is and to rejoice in what he has done. So let me give you two reasons for that. First, we all tend to forget, don't we? We tend to forget. How many of us even remember what we had for breakfast this morning? See, none of us have perfect knowledge of anything. And it's a rare person indeed who has what we would call a photographic memory. But even that gift has a limited shelf life. Because as we grow older, something happens with our memory, doesn't it? It fades. And that's just the way it is with all of us. And even if our memory is sharp as a tack till our last day, guess what? We have a last day. Then what happens to our memory? It's gone after we are gone. And so the bottom line is that we all need our memory refreshed in the things of God. That's why we seek to have regular times of Scripture reading and memorizing and meditating on Scripture so that we can faithfully apply it in our daily lives. For how many of us only need to read the Bible through just once and never have to do it again because we know everything there is to know about the Bible? I I hear a whole lot of no's. The same thing goes with prayer. As we go through our daily routine, if we don't pray, we will tend to forget the Lord, won't we? So we need our memory refreshed through prayer. And how often does the psalmist tell us in the words of his inspired prayers put to song, for that is in essence what the psalms are, that we are to remember the Lord and his ways in the daily grind of life. We're also to rejoice in the Lord regularly. And we need regular refreshment in this area of our lives as well. The Lord commands us that we are to love him with all of our heart. And part of this heart includes our emotions. But hear me well. Emotions are part of us, not all of us. And emotions are included here. And the word rejoice includes emotions, which are 
positive emotions, happy emotions. Scripture tells us this. As we will see today, though the feasts include a happy emotional element, they also include somber emotions as well, because there are more emotions in our being than just happy ones, correct? See, the Psalms tell us this. And by the way, there are more lament psalms in the book of Psalms than any other kind of psalm. You know what a lament is, right? It's where, where the psalmist pours out his complaints to the Lord. And he even says on occasion, go get him, God, as in go destroy my enemies. So how we need our emotions to be regularly refreshed. Again, this was part of the reason the Lord commanded his people to have these feasts. And as we will see, the Lord gives us as his people in the 21st century, commandments to come together to remember and rejoice as well. As the Lord has never changed, so our need for refreshment has never changed as well. As it was in Moses' day, so it is in our day. We need refreshment. We need to remember. So all that said, let's now look at the passage for today. Deuteronomy chapter 16, 1 to 17. And so we're going to talk about the feast of Passover first, and that's found in Deuteronomy 16, 1 to 8. The Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, is verses 9 to 12. And the Feast of Sukkot and Moses' summary of these feasts cover verses 13 to 17. So follow along with me as I read verses 1 to 8 of Deuteronomy 16. Observe the month of Aviv and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Aviv, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. And you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God from the herd or the flock at the place that the Lord will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, for you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. No leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory for seven days, nor shall any of the flesh that you sacrifice on the evening of the first day remain all night until morning. You may not offer the Passover sacrifice within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, but at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell in it. There you shall offer the Passover sacrifice in the evening at sunset at the time you came out of Egypt. And you shall cook it and eat it at the place that the Lord your God will choose. And in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. For in six days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day there shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. So let me point out a few highlights concerning this feast. First notice the issue of the calendar. It's the month of Aviv. I hope you can see it. Yahweh through Moses tells the people that Aviv is the first month of their year. It's kind of like our January. But there's a problem here. Do you see it? When is Aviv? It is April, May time frame. It's not exactly January. It's a little bit later on in the year. So what is up with this? Well, consider Aviv Israel's great reset. When God took his people out of Egypt, that made Israel a whole new people. Everything was brand new. And he wanted his people to remember this. Truly with them, the oldest passed away and all things became new. 
God, in effect, wanted Israel to place their lives as slaves of Egypt in their past. He didn't want them to forget where they came from. But Yahweh desired his people to live in the freedom of soul that he provided for them from that day on. So let's know something else in the Feast of Passover and unleavened bread. Now, we remember the story, don't we? If you remember the Ten Commandments or reading the book of Exodus. Plague 10 was about to be unleashed on Israel's taskmaster. In every household, there was the blood of the lamb. It was applied to the doorpost of Israelites. But in every place, the blood was not applied. God will kill the firstborn in that house. The Lord told the people to eat the lamb, which they sacrificed with its blood applied on their doorposts. Something else about the Passover meal. They were not just carnivores. They didn't eat just meat. They had to have bread with their meal. But the problem was, it took a long time for the leaven to work through the dough. And now, the Lord knew when the death angel would kill the firstborn to include Pharaoh's son, that he would thrust Israel out of Egypt right away, that night. Not enough time for the leaven to work its way through the dough. And so consequently, their bread was flatbread. And God called it the bread of affliction. Now think about this for a second. Moses called it the bread of affliction, but the people of Israel weren't afflicted, were they? They weren't the ones that were being afflicted. The afflicted ones were in the Egyptian households where all the firstborn sons were killed. But now let's go back to that night. Israel was obedient to the Lord and Egypt was not. How many families in Israel lost their firstborn sons? How about zero? No loud cries, no wailing from Israel. But in every household, what happened with the Egyptians? They were wailing, weren't they? They were afflicted. But from Israel's perspective, the bread was really the bread of haste, as it were. For Israel had to quickly get all their things together, gather them up, because they were going to leave that night pronto, leave their house of slavery. And they were also to go to their Egyptian neighbors and get their stuff too. Remember this. God told the people to ask from their neighbors all of their valuable things their silver, their gold, and so much more. God was going to move on the hearts of the Egyptians to give their valuables away to Israel. And so when Israel left Egypt, it was truly destroyed. No plants, no crops, nothing, as well as all the valuables. Egypt had nothing of value left. But as we know, Israel's sense of freedom was short-lived, wasn't it? A few days later, Pharaoh kind of came to a census, so to speak, and he and his army went after Israel. And Pharaoh and his armies and God had a showdown. And what was the prize? It was Israel was the prize. And who won? Now, we know the story, don't we? But Israel at that time did not know the end of the story when they lifted up their eyes and they saw Egypt coming after them. That was their time of affliction, wasn't it? And that's the reason why the Lord commanded Israel to have the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover for seven days, and not just one day, the day that they left out of Egypt. Seven days. Every year, Israel was to observe the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. 
they were to take an entire week to remember how Yahweh delivered them. How much affliction did the Lord rain down on Egypt? And how mighty is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? And notice briefly as well the change in the Feast of Passover and Unleavened Bread. Passover was observed the first time family by family in individual homes. But when Israel takes over the land of promise and gets settled, the nation together was to observe the feast at the corporate worship center in the place where the Lord would choose. Now, of course, we know this to be Jerusalem later on down the line. So we see the what and the how and eventually the where of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But now we're going to ask the question, why? Why this feast? Why did God command his people to take seven days out of every year of their very busy schedule to travel to the corporate worship center and have mandatory fun? Well, the answer is found in verse 3. All the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. Mark this. What was Moses telling the people? In essence, he said, some of you directly experienced the Lord delivering you out of the Egyptian slavery because it was 40 years prior to that. But all of you are God's freed people. You are to remember and never forget what the Lord did for you. The people were to literally call to mind the grace, the faithfulness, the power, and so much more that Yahweh displayed to Israel. Even if they were not physically present, they were to recount the mighty acts of the Lord. And it would doubtless be a horrific time as they would be thinking through in their mind's eye and hear with their mind's ear the Egyptian families wailing and weeping, having lost their firstborn sons. They were to, as it were, relive the fear of Egypt chasing them, crossing the Red Sea on dry ground, and then to see the Egyptian army in its totality dead on the the shore of the Red Sea. Somber emotions, knowing Egyptian families were destroyed and impoverished. Deep relief from Yahweh's deliverance of them. Incredible heights of emotion, remembering Yahweh's acting on behalf of them and their forefathers. See, this was not a mere religious ritual, relegated to some musty book no one reads in some dusty library no one visits. No, this was a reenactment that they were to do every year. And that's why faithful Jews, and even here we do Seder, don't we? To remember the Lord's mighty acts of salvation. So the next feast is a feast of weeks. We see that in verses 9 to 12. He said, you shall count seven weeks. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time the sickle is first put to the standing grain. Then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a freewill offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male and female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are among you at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and that you shall be careful to observe these statutes. That's Feast of Weeks. Pentecost. 
Let me fill you in on the detail of a couple of these before, again, we see the purpose for which the Lord would have them observe this feast. Let me go over to the book of Leviticus, because there's more detail here. So in Leviticus 23, 16, and 17, we see something extremely fascinating when it comes to this feast. Because now he's describing some more detail about the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. God says through Moses, you shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. And here's the point. You shall bring from your dwelling place two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven as firstfruits to the Lord. With leaven. Did you catch the distinction between Feast of Unleavened Bread and Pentecost? It's leavened bread. But why leavened bread? When the Feast of, of Unleavened Bread was to be observed, and now Feast of Pentecost is 50 days later. Leavened bread. Well, Scripture tells us specifically, these leavened loaves were offered as first fruits to the Lord. And this simply means that the people placed their hope in the Lord that he was going to provide an abundant harvest for them when their growing season was over. They did this in anticipation that the Lord was going to bless them. This is the meaning of the offering. And if we were back in Moses' day hearing this, we would understand Moses' command for this feast. We would give the Lord these kinds of offerings. But there is an application here that I find irresistible as I've done some preparation here, and I want to share it with you. The Feast of Weeks is what we call, again, Pentecost. It's a one-day feast and is literally 50 days after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Part of the offering is two leavened loaves of bread, and we know this. Well, about A.D. 700, a guy named Bede, B-E-D-E, gave this interpretation as to why the Lord required this offering. He viewed it as a prophecy where the two loaves represent Jews and Gentiles in one family of God in the church of Christ. And here's what he writes. Two loaves of bread made from the first fruits of the new harvest were rightly ordered to be offered, for the church gathers those it can consecrate to its Redeemer as a new family of both peoples, the Jews and the Gentiles. We're talking two peoples here, Jews, Gentiles in one body, one family of God. And when we think about the day of Pentecost and what that means, it seems to make sense, doesn't it? Two separate loaves of bread. And so from Jesus' band of 11 Jewish disciples, because remember, Judas kind of did away with himself. So 11 disciples and all these Jewish disciples making disciples of all nations, this has resulted in one massive family of God made up of both Jews and Gentiles, which are represented by the two loaves of bread, leavened bread, presented as an offering of spiritual first fruits. Aren't you glad that God has included Gentiles in the body of Christ? Yeah, I, I am. <laughs> Can I be a Gentile? <laughs> so why, though? Why the Feast of Weeks? Why Pentecost? Why did God want his people to do this, to do this, this feast? What did the Lord seek to accomplish in the lives of his people as they observed this? And where was it to be observed? Well, again, verse 11. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, 
the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are among you, at the place the Lord your God will choose, again, Jerusalem, to make his name to dwell there, this feast was to be joyfully observed at the corporate worship center. God wanted to elicit from his people true joy, to rejoice before him. And so the last of the third of the three annual pilgrim feasts, as what many of the learned people call these three feasts, is the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot. Now, this is truly a harvest festival where Israel was to rejoice over all that the Lord provided for them during the growing season. Moses talks about this in verses 13 and 15. He said, You shall keep the Feast of Booths seven days when you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your winepress. You shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter and your male servant, your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns. For seven days you shall keep the feast of the Lord your God at the place the Lord will choose, because the Lord your God will bless you in all the produce and all the work of your hands, so that you will be altogether joyful. Again, joy. Rejoice in the Lord here. This feast, again, is called the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles, or Sukkot. And Sukkot literally means tents, or described as makeshift tent-like structures. They were to be kind of rickety, kind of not, not, uh, not sturdy at all, because it was to give the people the reminder that God protects them. God provides for them all that they need, and even some of the things that they want. As Kitty's godly grandmother would often tell her, God gives us all that we need and sometimes gives us our wants. And I think that's good advice. I think it's a good, a good word here. And once again, this week-long feast is to be observed near the corporate worship center where the people would be camping out for a week without the campers. Sorry, guys. Bringing their offerings to give thanks to the Lord for the abundant harvest he provided them. Again, that's the where. But what about the why? What is the Lord seeking to do to his people as they observe this feast? Again, verse 14, we read in part, you shall rejoice in your feast. In verse 15, we read in part, for seven days you shall keep the feast to the Lord so that you will be altogether joyful. Literally, surely filled with joy, filled full with joy. That's what he wanted to elicit from his people. He wanted them to experience joy. And so with all three feasts, God's intention for his people is that they might experience true R&R, or they might remember his goodness to them and to rejoice in their relationship with him. The eternal God is truly good to his covenant people. Will we agree with that? He delights to give joy to them, to us. By a mighty hand, he delivered them called them out of darkness and slavery and brought them into his kingdom. And he desires for his people to not forget him and to rejoice in him. To God be the glory. So before I tie up this message and seek to apply it to our lives, we need to look at verses 16 and 17, where the Lord highlights a certain group of people who must attend these feasts because not everyone was required to attend to have, again, mandatory fine. It was... All males, understood to be 20 years old and older. They are not allowed to stay away from the corporate worship center when these feasts were held, even if they get behind in their work. 
or heaven forbid, to have a date with the latest and greatest video game. Can't, can't stay away because of that reason. In other words, the men were to lead the way in what is in reality discipleship training regarding their family. And with two of the feasts, the head of the household was to mentor every member to include servants, sojourners, widows, and even orphans. The head, the male head of the household had a joyful responsibility to pass on the ways of Yahweh to all those under his influence. Guys, no pressure. This is what we are called to do then and now. But if only the males were required to attend the feast, what about the women and the kids? Did they just stay home and blow off that gracious invitation of the Lord to help them to remember and rejoice in his presence? I really like the way one author put it. The males were required to attend, but females were welcomed and indeed encouraged to do so. But in reality, think about this. Unless the wife and kids were absolutely rebellious against the Lord, why would they want to stay away? And if they did, what does that say about the head of the household and how he was doing in regards to passing on the ways of Yahweh to his family? Think national spirit as well, where all of God's people were to joyfully come together to remember the Lord and rejoice in his presence. So what can we take away? What can we run with here as Christians in the 21st century in Mechanicsville, Virginia? Our good God treats his people well, doesn't he? I see in, in these three feasts, three parallels between Israel and us. Three incredible opportunities that we have to experience ongoing R&R, remembrance, and rejoicing. And the first parallel is Passover and communion. Now, that ought to be obvious if we've been in the church and we know Scripture for any length of time. Passover and communion. See, Jesus is our Passover lamb. He established the new covenant where the Lord does things that ought to boggle our mind. You know, when we come together for communion, we ought to come with anticipation and we ought to come with a fresh understanding of what Jesus actually did for us. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33 talks about what that sacrifice of the Lord Jesus means. I won't read the verses, but let me give you a listing of the things that are listed in this new covenant. First, it is indeed a new covenant, a new everlasting agreement that the Lord makes with his people. This is his doing. He makes the first move. And he did that through sending his son to be the sacrifice for their sin. Second, God puts his law, literally his Torah, within his people and writes the law upon the hearts of all true followers of Jesus. I've said it before, but I'm going to continue saying this. It is such amazing truth. What does it mean when we say that we have something on our heart? It means that that is what is extremely important to us. For example, Jack spends a ton of money. He buys a ring, takes Jill to that perfect spot. What do you think is on his heart? There's no doubting about this. Or on the other side, your beloved grandfather is about ready to meet Jesus. And he wants to spend time with you. And so you pull up a chair next to his bed. His mind is still as sharp as a tack, and he begins to tell you what he wants you to know. 
And he finishes with the words, I love you. All those words that he spoke to you are on his heart to include, I love you. They are most important to him. He wanted to pass on to you. And now they become the most important things in your heart as well. This is what it means for God to write his Torah on the hearts of his people. Those words become the most valuable utterances to them. Let Elon Musk and his purchase of Twitter go. Even if we have the free speech on his platform, give me the words of eternal life. Third, the new covenant entails an incredible, intimate relationship between Yahweh and his people. I will be their God. They will be my people. And what ought to be first and foremost in the front of the minds of every follower of Jesus is, I really get to know the God of the universe. Because Jesus made it possible. The God of the universe, think about this. The one who knows everything there is to know about everything. The one who's all-powerful has given us an invitation to know him. Really know him. You take them up on the offer? Fourth, he says, I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. Now you tell me. How many of God's people live in the reality that their sins are completely gone now and forever? I would venture to say very few. How many times do we think that God is going to zap us next time we do something wrong? He says, I'm going to remember their sins no more. How many have taken it to heart what is impossible to take in these magnificent I wills of Almighty God, of Almighty Yahweh, the ever-faithful one? Let me say them again. I will forgive their iniquity. I will not remember their sin anymore. And this literally means there is no duration in which I will dwell on your sin. That's what it means. God will not hold our sin against us if we know Christ. Why? Because Christ died. For our sins. When he was on the cross, what did he say? It's finished, paid in full. We don't have to bear our sin anymore. It's gone now and forever. In communion, we remember what the Lord Jesus established. His death made that possible. Whenever we participate in the Lord's Supper, we remember the, the price that Christ paid for our deliverance. He delivered us from the domain of darkness. And he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God tells his people in the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread to remember their deliverance. It's a time of deep emotions, profound reality. It cost many people their lives back in the day. And the blood ran red on that night. And it was the blood that purchased their deliverance as Yahweh brought them out with a mighty hand. And as the Lord commanded all male adults and encouraged the rest of the nation to come and remember what he did. So in the Lord's Supper, we all are encouraged to remember what the Lord Jesus did for us to purchase our deliverance. See, we are now God's people through repentance of sin and embracing the gospel of Christ and the Christ of the gospel. We are followers of the king who demonstrated to the world that he loved his father. The Lord Jesus laid down his life for us to redeem us. 
Let's remember him and rejoice in his incredible gift of salvation whenever we participate in the Lord's Supper. Second parallel I see between Israel and us is the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost and baptism. In the Feast of Weeks, Israel gave an offering in anticipation of what the Lord was going to do to abundantly bless the harvest. Their offering was, along with properly prepared animals, two loaves of leavened bread. In baptism, the candidate declares not only their allegiance to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, but the candidate also declares their allegiance to the gathered body of believers at the local assembly. This person is saying, in effect, I pledge myself to you, believers, followers of Jesus, in anticipation of all that the Lord is going to do in and through me to strengthen the believers here. I also pledge to receive ministry from you as well. I anticipate that the Lord will use you in my life, and I anticipate he will use me in yours. Here at Grace United, we mutually pledge to share life with one another. And baptism is an outward demonstration of that pledge. Third parallel I see between Israel and us is Sukkot and the many abundant opportunities that any local church, any good local church has to nourish his people. The Feast of Sukkot gives those who participate to say thanks for how the Lord has sustained them physically and will continue to do so. But let's not forget that the Lord brought them out through so many trials and tests while they were in the wilderness. And let's remember, the Lord sent his people into the wilderness. Why? Because of their sin. But the Lord is gracious, isn't he? He's merciful. He's kind to them. He is faithful to provide for his people, even though they wander. Remember Yahweh's words to Moses in this regard in Deuteronomy 8. And he humbled you and let you hunger. He did this. He let you hunger. He fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. Man lives by every word that proceeds and comes forth from the mouth of the Lord. You know, as we go through life day by day, how we need reminders that the Lord sustains us by his word. If we're not careful, we will drift away and we will forget him. Scripture abound with these warnings, these things. But any local assembly which honors the Lord will provide ongoing spiritual nourishment for his people. And we just happen to have a number of opportunities here, don't we? We remember the calendar. We see this all the time. We've got so many things going on. I don't need to run through the litany of everything that we offer. But the opportunities for spiritual nourishment and fellowship are many. And I implore you, if you're not part of these things that we offer, then just take the initiative and involve yourself in a spiritual Sukkot, so to speak. And if you don't have to wait until we host Sukkot in September, October, out back, we can do this here every week, multiple times a week. And as I land the plane for today, let me simply ask this question. When was the last time from a profound sense of awe and wonder that you remembered what the Lord has done for you in salvation? When was the last time you engaged your emotions and rejoiced in the Lord for all his goodness towards you? When we come together on Sunday mornings, what is your heart like? Is it full of anticipation to remember him and rejoice with all who call Grace United their home? Or is it just another 
someday. As we spend a moment in the Lord's presence, let's focus on what your life might have been if the Lord had not saved you. If the day of salvation had never come to you and for you. If that friend had not introduced you to Jesus or whatever means by which you came to know Christ as your Lord and Savior, where would you be? What would you be doing right now? I can guarantee you, I wouldn't be here. If the Lord had not saved you, where would you be in your life? Or what if you're still in the kingdom of darkness, even now? What could life be like for you if you would call upon the name of the Lord today and you would repent of your sin? What could life be like for you to have your sins completely forgiven now and forever because of Jesus' sacrifice for you? What could it be like if you would give your life to Jesus today? So let's just spend a moment reflecting on these things. If you've never come to know Christ as your Lord and Savior, today is your day of salvation. If you have come to know Christ, been kind of drifting away a little bit, recommit yourself to him. So let's just spend a moment in the silence, and then we'll close in prayer. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would move continue to move over our hearts and minds. Lord, you are imploring all of us to a closer walk with you. Lord Jesus, you hung on the cross and you now have been raised to the right hand of the Father. You have begun to rule and reign over ultimately the one kingdom that you are king of. Every one of us, Lord, are in your kingdom. And you have the right to do with every person what you want. Lord, you didn't ask us if we wanted to be born. Lord, you didn't, you're not going to consult us on the day of our death. And you didn't ask us if we want to be part of the kingdom. You paid for us, Lord, by your blood. And so, Lord, we have one thing to do, and that is to get with the program. That's to be reconciled with you. And Lord, for all those under the sound of my voice, I pray that we have become and been reconciled with you, either sometime in the past or even maybe today, that your that people's hearts are opened up. Lord Jesus, I pray that by your spirit, that you would help us to more fully understand how good you are. You long to give us joy. And Lord, you told us, you told the disciples that your greatest joy was to obey the Father to obey his commands, and you wanted to pass that on to us as well. So, Lord, I pray that we will find our greatest joy in obeying you. Lord, you told us in your word that if we love you, we will obey you. And so, Lord Jesus, thank you for loving us first. Thank you for obeying the Father and giving us the example. Thank you for going to the cross, dying for all of our sins, and we never have to bear them again if we only turn to you. And, Lord, I thank you for this. I thank you that repentance is a gift you've given to everyone and that we truly can, Lord, turn from our sins and we can embrace you. And Lord, for all of us who are in the family of God, help us, Lord, to walk closer with you, experiencing your joy as we remember who you are and to rejoice in your presence. We thank you, Lord, for these things. And now we're asking, Lord, as we 
turn our attention to a couple more acts of worship. I pray indeed they would be acts of worship, that we will do them from our hearts. It's our giving and we sing again, Lord, that uh, we will give you the praise and the worship and the honor and the glory because you alone deserve it in Jesus' name.